Well, let's uh, now um, turn to uh, the Word of God, to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, which we have been looking at for quite a long time, uh, but we are coming um, quite soon to a, to a close. And partic- we're looking particularly uh, to, for verses 18 to 20. Now, uh, verse 18 is the context which we looked at last, last time we were looking at Ephesians. Um, but I will read from verse 18. That's on page 1163, 1163 in the Church Bibles. So, verse 18, page 1163. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication... To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now, I'd like uh, to pray before uh, looking into this, this passage. Oh, Father in heaven, uh, we know that it's important that we should do what's said in these verses because they're there. Um, Paul asked for prayer for the preaching of the gospel. He asked for boldness and he asked, uh, Lord, for clarity and uh, uh, for the opportunity to preach the gospel while he was an ambassador in chains. And we ask you, Lord, to speak to us in our situation and apply these to our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I want, to, uh, I want us to notice this. Uh, the, I've, I've called the title, Praying for the Bold Ambitions and Bold Declarations of the Gospel, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, but I think it kind of summarizes at least part, if not all of his meaning, but certainly part of it, um, of Paul saying in his age, 2,000 years ago, but in our age, how important it is as a priority that um, there should be bold ambitions and bold declarations of the, bo- of the gospel of Christ. I mean, Paul actually, uh, you'll see that he says at the end of verse 20, he repeats this request for prayer for himself, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly. He's already said it once. Said it again, boldly, as I ought to speak. Now, what does boldly mean? It doesn't mean being um, uh, uh, what is it, just loud and ranting in an insane way. It doesn't mean um, going about offending people unnecessarily by the way we do things, by being unpleasant, unkind, judgmental, and all those sorts of things. What he's talking about is loving boldness, realizing the desperate need that people are in and being prepared to put ourselves forward to actually declare that message. And this is Paul, one of the great men of of God that has ever lived by the grace of God. Paul was such a great man and and, and has done such great things. But he says, I need prayer that I may be bold as I ought to be bold. As I've said, not in a horrible way, but in the most loving and kind way 
but a way which would actually shake the Roman Empire, which we'll talk about um, in a few minutes. You see, the, the gospel demands a bold presentation. Uh, Paul uses this word mystery. He says, the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And in Colossians, in a, a parallel passage, he asks that, that uh, the, uh, the Colossians will... Um, uh, ask him to, he asks for prayer that he will be able to preach the gospel clearly. Um, and he's talking again in Colossians about the mystery of the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that Paul is basically saying the gospel's a mystery uh, and I really need, you know, you know, somehow to be able to understand it, to be able to get it across to people? No, that's not what Paul is saying. He uses the word mystery in numerous occasions in Romans, I think four times, Colossians a couple of times. Here, I think in Ephesians, he uses the word mystery six times. And in each case, he's talking about the mystery means something that once was hidden. It was once a truth that no one understood, no one knew about. But now it's burst in upon the world through Jesus Christ. And now it is clear the actual way that God is going to save the world. As well as uh, what Henry was talking about this morning, the mystery of the church. Of the, of the great aim of God in providing the gospel, which is to to save people from hell and make them members of the new kingdom of, uh, of heaven, uh, the church itself, both in this world and in the next. Now, it's, when Paul is asking for this, this uh, boldness, and he says, I, I ought to preach it, we, we need to understand that the gospel itself is an incredibly shocking message. It, it tells us shocking things, if you like. Um, now, I mean by shocking, not disturbing, you know, People often say, well, it disturbed me, meaning frightful, something awful, something terrible. But a shocking surprise of such joy and gladness and wonder that it staggers people. Can this be true? This is amazing. Like the shock, I guess, when someone might suddenly find they've been left millions of pounds by a stranger they hardly knew. The, the shock of the gospel is so great because such a great thing has been done for us that we can hardly take it in. Um, Jesus Christ died. Well, the world at the time of Jesus thought nothing of his death. Um, a, a Dutch professor once calculated the cost of killing people, usually in war, at different state times in history. During the reign of Julius Caesar, around about the time of Jesus, uh, it cost about... 70 pence to kill another soldier in a war. I mean, you worked out these, you know, in terms of the cost of the treasury of sending out an army to war, the cost of feeding, providing for them, their arms, their training and everything. And then it worked out on the number of bases, the number of people they killed, how much it cost. About 70 pence in our money. Uh, by the time of Napoleon, which of course was uh, sort of 1,800 years later, he worked out it cost... Um, 1,500 pounds to kill a soldier in a war. Uh, by the end of the First World War, it was costing something like 1,300 pounds to kill a soldier because as arms increased and became more, more, uh, more destructive, at the same time, vast more money, money was being spent in factories and so on, training soldiers, paying them, etc., to kill other soldiers. By the uh, Second World War, it was um, 35,000 pounds to kill a soldier 
And uh, in the Vietnam War, it was reckoned for every soldier, enemy soldier killed by the United States, it cost them about $150,000. What did it cost to kill Jesus? 70p. Is that all Jesus was worth? The Bible says it only cost 70 pence for a bit of wood and the time of these soldiers to torture and kill Jesus. But actually, what is Jesus' death worth? Infinite, infinite value. Infinite value for this world, this, this wretched world, full of millions of billions of people walking without God and on their way to a lost eternity, stepping over the, you know, the, the, the boundaries of death when they die and then they're going into a lostness forever and ever and ever. And yet Jesus Christ came into this world to pay the price for billions of people if they're prepared to receive him. How much did it cost God the Father to send his son? Infinite cost. Infinite cost. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's how much the world is worth to God. He gave his only son, Jesus Christ. So whoever believes in him might not perish. Now, actually, as I've said, when you think starkly about about this, God so loved this world, the world of wars, the world of famines, the world of, of cruelty, the worlds of crime, the world of, of, of re- people rejecting God, it is, it's, sh- it's shocking. But that's why we have to proclaim these shocking facts clearly. There, you know, there, there really is, um, you know, a, a dilution of the gospel that, that, that happens from time to time. It's certainly been happening over the past hundred years. I was reading uh, about a, a crash, a train crash in the 50s in America uh, when they didn't have all these computerized systems of warnings and they used to have the system of flags. If, they, if there was a, a, the possibility of danger, they would wave a red flag or uh, they would de- rain, um, wave a yellow flag to say that everything was okay. On one occasion... A train broke down, which was basically full of kids. And uh, uh, it was full of large numbers of people, but many, many children from, from local schools. It broke down, and the guy who was the engineer got out and waved his flag. And the thing was, there was an express train that came 20 minutes later that was going at really high speed. I imagine in those days, in the 50s, probably 80 miles an hour, 70, 80 miles an hour. And this guy waved his flag... Uh, he, you know, he ran in, and, uh, you know, quite a long way to get, to get um, near enough to the train so it could stop in time. He waved his flag, nothing happened. And the result was it plowed into the, into the back of the tr- this train and many, many people were killed. Many scores of people were killed, including many children. Now, why did it happen? It happened because this guy was waving what he thought was a red flag because he'd had it in the back of his compartment, but he hadn't examined it properly. And actually, it was so old that the fabric had been degraded by the sun and by age and everything. And it was really a dirty, it looked a dirty yellow color. And he was waving that to the people uh, coming in the next train. And they just thought that meant, oh, that's fine, go on. And they went on. Now, we live in a world in which millions of people in Britain, where millions of people are dying, going into a lost eternity. And there are people that call themselves Christians that are not waving the red flag. They're not saying... Look, you're on your way to hell. This lifestyle you've chosen, the life you're living, you're not going to hell. You're, you're okay. God loves everybody and so on. They get the impression that life is, is easy. 
You know, it's easy to get to heaven, just as it's easy to get a Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's easy to get this. And if you believe, you know, what you want, you'll get it. And, and no, I want to go to heaven, so I'll go to heaven. No, it's not like that. People are saved only through the death of Jesus Christ and trusting him and receiving him personally. The thing is that we need to get it clear, the shock of the fact that there is a heaven, and there is a hell, there is a, a judgment. Now, we live in a culture in which these are unpalatable facts. And it's very easy for us to censor us. Oh, we don't want to offend people. Oh, we don't want to be sound, uh, you know, like maniacs. We don't want to uh, offend people, so we actually don't wave the red flag. The second thing I want to notice is that this love that I've talked about in Jesus Christ is so amazing, and it is so shocking, that the Father in heaven was prepared to give his only son because he loved us and he's not prepared he's not prepared to see the most wicked and horrible people just go to go to hell god has provided a way for the most defiled and corrupt person to be saved i mean nigel chose that hymn it wonderfully fits in with what, I, what i'm talking about now you know that hymn in three verses talks about um the fact that um, we're, uh, we're defiled, you know, corrupt. The scope of my transgressions, fantastic, but it, God's love is wider than the scope of our transgressions. Uh, I read just last week about Louis, uh, Louis, Louis Pasteur, who was a famous French scientist, who actually uh, uh, was the first one to, to use inoculations, uh, and it's resulted in... Uh, Tens of millions being saved from all kinds of diseases, uh, but especially, I think, uh, TB and, uh, and others uh, he worked with. But he had, in 1870, he'd only just gone through a shocking tragedy of losing three of his daughters to sicknesses. And he only had one child left, a son. Uh, and to actually lose three children, you know, terrible tragedy. But then his son entered the army, and as things, you know, things go, a war suddenly happens in Europe, uh, the, uh, the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. Uh, and uh, suddenly all the letters stopped coming from the, his son. And uh, weeks passed without any news, and then Pasteur could, he couldn't take it any longer. He basically, you know told everybody in the, in the laboratories I'm, I'm, I'm going, I'm, I've got to go and he went off uh, um, to the main battlefields in the war found the road full of uh, defeated soldiers patients and dying soldiers and he finally, finally found his son's unit after days of, of looking and an officer told him that there had been a credible slaughter of his unit. Out of 1,200 troops, only 300 survived. 900 had been killed. And Pasteur was so gripped with, with horror. And, but he went looking everywhere. He went down winding roads. There were people, their bodies. There were people dying of, of, of their wounds. There were those who were freezing. And then finally he found his son. And his son was weak, and he was in a terrible way. But it says in his biography that Pasteur simply found his his son, and without any words between them, they just embraced. 
He loved his son and he had found him. Now here's the shocking truth. Jesus said, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner, one wicked, corrupt, defiled, awful person who repents. More joy in heaven. And that's not just talking about the angels rejoicing, but the joy and love of the Father in heaven to his people when he finds them. Now this is one reason why if you're thinking of becoming a Christian, you need not dread God. And in fact, sometimes even Christians can be really frightened of God the Father. And really, although they trust in Christ, they sometimes feel, oh, you know, maybe God is, God the Father is, is, is a stern, terrible presence. No, the Father in heaven loves his children. This is a shock. It's a shock to know that behind this universe there is this loving presence of the Father in heaven who has sent his son, the good shepherd, to find the sheep. And when the sheep and the shepherd come home, the father rejoices and embraces the child who's come back to him. So if perhaps you've been, maybe you've you've been worried these last few days or weeks by your spiritual life, it's not going well, you've sinned, you've failed, you feel awful, understand that the Lord wants you back. Obviously you've got to leave your sins, you can't, you can't stay in the, in, in the enemy's house if you want to come back home. You need to come back home to the place of holiness and love to walk with Christ. But do, do it. And if you've never received Christ, personally receive Jesus. Personally receive Jesus. It's no use you know, knowing all these facts, but not actually personally talking to the Lord Jesus and, and saying, Lord, thank you that you died for me and help me to live for you. You need to say that personally. Um, there's a funny story about a man who, who used to wait at the entrance of um, Vienna's Museum of Fine Arts, and uh, this included, in fact, lots of Egyptian monuments. And people used to consult him because he, 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 I don't know whether he was, why he was sitting around all day long. I, I think he probably got tips and so on. And everybody thought he was a great expert because he was able to tell them where every monument was. He knew every detail about the monument and the details that were provided. They thought he was a big expert. And they assumed, of course, he'd been to Egypt, where all these monuments had come from, and he'd never been anywhere in his life apart from that seat (laughs) and wandering through the exhibits and learning the exhibits. It was all second-hand knowledge to him. Now, some people know everything about the gospel and everything about Christianity, but they haven't received Jesus personally. They haven't been to him. Just like this guy had never been to Egypt. A lot of people never come to Jesus and receive him. And that's what you need to do tonight. And by faith. Um, it's easy to do. Close your eyes or even with your eyes open. Just call out to the Lord. Lord Jesus, receive me. And as I said, this is, these are wonderful and bold truths. Now Paul says in, this, uh, in his uh, request to the Philippians... You know, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Now, just want to think about a few more things before I close, which is that notice how incredible is Paul's assertions about himself and his role in the world. He says, I'm an ambassador. He says, um, I am an ambassador in chains. Now imagine a psychiatrist meeting Paul. You might imagine someone went back in a TARDIS at the time machine and they interviewed Paul in prison. 
And uh, you can imagine what he said. Now, the man would say something like this. Now, Saul, you don't mind me calling you by your original Jewish name. I hear you think you're an ambassador for God of the whole earth. <laughs> well, look, uh, I haven't got medication with me, but I think I perhaps could you know, talk to you and help you. Um, let's discuss a few things. Um, firstly, uh, this gospel that you're talking about, and you, you claim it's going to, you're going to be preaching everywhere. Well, you're in prison at the moment, so look, let's be realistic. You're not going to get out of prison. And so you're going nowhere. And how many of these people belong to your little cult? At most, uh, and we've counted this, it's the year 62 since AD, since uh, Jesus was born, uh, as you've worked it out, uh, Paul. I, I looked this up, 62 years, and there's not more than 10,000 people all, all over scattered all over the Roman Empire. We've got 30 million in the Roman Empire, well, certainly 20 million, and you've got a few thousand, and you think that this gospel is going to go over the whole world? Oh, my dear Paul, you must, that's uh, all I'd say, you must be realistic. You're an ambassador going nowhere, and this message is going nowhere, and the best thing you can do is actually just forget it all. Now, I could go on, actually. Um, the thing is this, it's true what the psychiatrist in my little scenario was saying. Even at this stage in Paul's life, 62, he had about another four or five years to live, probably. Um, if indeed uh, Ephesians was written from uh, prison in Rome, there are a number of different theories. It's not absolutely clear. He might have been writing it uh, from another prison. It might, he might have even been in Ephesus in prison. And this might have been a letter to the churches out, you know, out, out, um, in general, because... Um, not just to the, the Ephesian church, but, but to, to a circular to many churches in that area of Turkey. But if it was the year 62, actually what did happen was that Paul did actually leave prison. And um, he go, gives us indications in the book of Romans that he wanted to go to Spain next after being in Rome. And all of the uh, historical traditions we know of is indeed he was able to go to Spain and preach the gospel and eventually returned to Rome where then under uh, the Emperor Nero, he was beheaded. But I want to notice this, that Paul seemed to the, to the people of his world to be quite insane. Uh, another, uh, another guy called, another uh, a Roman official uh, called Festus, uh, said to Paul, your much learning has made you insane. You know, you say that Jesus has appeared to you, You're, you've got a mental problem. But I want us to notice this, that Paul's uh, mission to the world was not actually, oh, it's all going to happen you know, overnight. It didn't happen overnight. But in fact, the maybe 10,000 believers, if there were 10,000 believers in the year 62, actually it became um, 40,000 at least by the year 150 A.D., by the year 200 AD, it was 200,000 at least. And by 250 AD, AD was 2 million. And by the time uh, Constantine, it became the majority of people in the Roman Empire. At least on the surface became believers. And the message spread. Many of those people, of the 30 million or so that may have professed Christ at the time of Constantine afterwards, they may have been fake. Many of them may have just done it just for reasons of convenience but all the same this gospel 
that, that Paul preached is the gospel of God. Now, this is, what, this is the important point. Why was Paul saying that we could be bold? Because this gospel is not of human invention. It's the gospel of God. And because it's the gospel of God, we can boldly tell people it's truth. Now, as I said, that's not necessarily being, us being arrogant, nasty, horrible to people. But actually being prepared to upfront and say, actually, this is what we believe. Paul was basically asking um, in, in this passage and others for basically the freedom of speech as well as boldness. He says, uh, pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly. Now, many theories on this. Some people say that Paul had a speech impediment. Uh, that's why in Corinthians, when he was talking to Corinthians, he, he, he says, I, you know, I'm not a very good speaker. Um, actually, I personally think that was Paul probably just being humble. But either way, um, even if he did have some kind of speech impediment or he wasn't a terribly good speaker, uh, Paul knew that what he had to do was be able to have freedom of speech, the freedom to say clearly the truths of the gospel that we've been talking about. Now, you know... This is what we need today. We have impediments today in our speech when it comes to the gospel. We live in um, the age of the cool. Um, I thought that was the 1960s because that was when the word cool was used all the time when I was a small kid. Um, but then it came, back into, it came back into the language 20 years ago. And in po- the postmodern world we live in, it's not cool to say this is the truth. To be ironic, to think things a bit funny, not, not to get too committed, too involved. You stand back a bit, don't get too, uh, too um, emotional about things. Uh, people are afraid of being made a fool of, so they in turn always, you know, kind of want to make fun of other people. And of course, it's very easy to make fun of Christians. Um, but the gospel just makes serious and bold claims about reality. And uh, if anything, it's the, the people who oppose the gospel who are the ones who become hysterical. They accuse Christians of, of uh, being unloving and judgmental when so often we're not. <laughs> uh, they accuse us of being unkind and unloving and yet so often we're not. We need boldness. The boldness of loving, patient, kindness, but involved in proclamation. We need it, not just in uh, today's world in which we have intimidation from people, you know, they might cancel us or they might say this, that and the other about us, but actually in times of real persecution. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 2, Though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, We had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Now, we need to pray for the church worldwide and us, if we ever enter that realm of persecution, that we will have that loving boldness not to to be put off, not to kind of uh, be afraid and intimidated into silence. In today's society, it does take boldness to tell people you're a believer. And it, frankly, it has been all of my life. I, I, 
there wasn't a golden age when, uh, you know, in the last hundred years, when it was easy to tell people you're a real, a real Christian. Um, I've, I've mentioned uh, on a few occasions uh, the fact I've got volumes of The Listener at home, which date back to the 1950s, and in it there's article. It's really thick. It's thousands of pages, you know, because it's it's all of the scripts for radio programs for the whole year. So it's really large. And as you go through these, it's staggering the amount of anti-Christian, in fact, all of it is anti-Christian or anti-Bible material that is actually in in that, in the 1950s. All the intellectuals were against Bible-believing Christianity then. And even the vicars and curates that that speak, they don't speak a simple gospel. It's never been easy to tell people you're a believer. Um, my grandfather was a lay preacher as a young man in, uh, in Lancashire, in St. Helens. After the First World War, he seemed to have completely lost his way. And when I knew him as a kid, I had no idea that he was a preacher when he was young, when he was in his 20s. And uh, he never really mentioned anything. I never remember him once ever talking to me or my sisters about God or the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, it wasn't easy in the 20s, 30s and 40s to be a Christian in Lancashire as I believe it wasn't down here in London either being a real Bible believing Christian Spurgeon who was who by the way on the notice sheet there's a little uh, byline about Spurgeon this great Baptist preacher do read it and uh, also read about him but he, com- he was complaining in the 1880s and the 1890s that London was one vast dark domain of paganism with very few believers in it compared to the vast numbers of people here. And it was hard then to stand and, uh, and try to bring people to Christ. So let's be clear that Christians are always going to be in the situation where we have to declare boldly our belief. And we, I, I'm afraid I'm going to make a... a um, uh, I'm going to make a generalization now which I think is true that basically the evangelical church of the 20th century the last century ended 20 years ago was basically institutionally intimidated by the pagan society round about now why do I say that well I'm not saying it's true of all the churches but by and large churches felt that somehow they had to earn credibility for the gospel so making it kind of socially acceptable intellectually credible uh, or even trying to make out that what we're doing all of the time is good works, but not actually preaching the message. Now, I'm not denying any of those things are important. I think, personally, it's really important we give a reason for the hope that's within us. We argue for the gospel. We make clear that science, archaeology, and the factual world all together make it clear that the Bible is true. I think that's important. But if, we, if that's all we do, we're not saving a soul. We need to boldly declare the simple gospel. And uh, unfortunately, as I've said, the 20th century church seems to to have not been characterized by boldness with the gospel message, as can be seen by the fact that time after time on television, when Christians ever got the chance on songs of praise or something to preach the gospel, they never did. I mean, I've hardly ever heard the gospel uh, mentioned by Christians on uh, terrestrial BBC or ITV. You only hear uh, even now on the on the paid-for channels that are run by Christians. We need to actually uh, also look at the 21st century and say, well, where are we going? 
Where are the churches going? Where are you going? Are you afraid to tell people you're Christians? I mean, there's outreach to be done in this world. And if we can't, if, we, if we're not able to talk to our friends or our friends aren't really interested, well, let's find other people. Let's go on the doors or let's do a book table or let's preach in the open air. Find any way in which we can boldly uh, declare the message because that's what Paul wanted. And remember, Paul said to, his, uh, Paul said to, 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 to people he wrote to, imitate me as I am, in, as I am an imitator of Christ. And so this declaration of Paul, pray that the Lord will give me boldness to make the gospel clear. That is also a prayer that we should be asking for ourselves. That we can make the gospel clear to our, our family, our relatives, our friends and neighbors. And as I said, to all the other opportunities, all of the other, other doors that God may open to us as we live our lives. We need to see that... Um, the gospel is a message that is so important. Jesus said this in Luke 24, um, verse starting at, well, we'll start it at verse 45. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, talking to the disciples on the Emmaus road. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Now, if we we are to fulfill that mandate, we need boldness. And we need to be praying for boldness for the preachers, the pastors, the teachers, the elders, ordinary Christians, for churches all over Britain. Indeed, for churches all over the world. Paul says this, also... Pray for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, let's just pray and then we'll sing the last hymn. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us the Holy Spirit who, Lord, helps us in our weakness. Lord, you haven't given us this Holy Spirit as a a spirit of timidity. But, Lord, a spirit of, of, of love and self-control. And, Lord, uh, the spirit that gives us boldness and bravery with the gospel that you've given us. And we ask you, Lord, please, that um, all of us in our church here may have this boldness within ourselves. We pray, Lord, that you will give boldness to church leaders all over our borough, indeed all over London, to spread the gospel in every way that can be spread. Mothers and toddlers groups. Um, children's work, uh, uh, work amongst down and outs, um, door-to-door work, open-air work, uh, uh, young mothers. Lord, all of these different works that are being done for you, we pray, Lord, that the word of God and the gospel will be declared clearly and so that many people, Lord, in these years will come to Christ. We pray, Lord, that you're going to pour out your Holy Spirit as on the day of Pentecost, upon our city. Lord, that churches that, and us, Lord, that up to now uh, see ones and twos becoming Christians, Lord, may see dozens and hundreds coming to know Christ. Lord, our needs are just the same as they were in the Roman Empire. Lord, people like us, corrupt, selfish, wicked, rebellious, disobedient, vile, defiled, and yet, Lord, you loved them, you brought them to Christ, 
You worked by your Holy Spirit to bring them under conviction. And we ask you, Lord, you will do this in our days. And Lord, if not in my days, Lord, in, in the days to come in, in Britain, uh, and work and bring glory to yourself. Uh, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.